Hello, and welcome to the Middle East Forum speaker webinar series and podcast. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Bill Raggio, a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, editor of its Long War Journal, and president of Public Multimedia, Inc., join us to discuss why Al-Qaeda and ISIS still matter. Bill will speak for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I will turn the discussion over to Bill Raggio. Thank you, Stacy. Thank you for the generous invite and for talking about this important matter. And um, thanks everyone for joining us today. Um, look, I, with the war in Ukraine, it is understandable that everyone's focus is on that uh, very important, very vital issue. Um, it is, you know, I, I, I get why people have tuned out the threat of terrorism, um, that it's been a long war. People are tired. Um, they are tired of these extended conflicts, but just because we wish to disengage from these wars doesn't mean that our enemy is going away. And I would argue that Ukraine has given groups like Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State um, more space to operate as Western attention begins to uh, turn towards Europe and then turn towards China um, as well. These groups have, um, their countries that they're battling are gonna get less support from the West, from the United States. Um, they're also the fallout of potential economic um, uh, and uh, food insecurity issues like that can weaken the states where these, where these are, groups are fighting, particularly in African nations where food insecurity is, is, is a very big issue. Um, but why do Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, state matter? Um, the, what is the goal of, of the jihad? What is their goal? And it's, it's very simple. People confuse what Al-Qaeda did on 9-11 or what the Islamic State, since it, it was formed, um, as what they were doing as just basically they want to kill Westerners. That their goal was to commit acts of terrorism to kill people. But that's not it. Their goal is to reestablish a caliphate and impose Sharia law in, in these areas. Both Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State share the same goal, they just have a different approach. And I, I, I uh, uh, distill it down to this, uh, just because there's 15 minutes and uh, it's a lot to talk about. Um, Al-Qaeda wants to establish emirates to build its caliphate. So for instance, the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan would be one emirate in its global caliphate. Al-Qaeda says, we don't declare the caliphate until we are capable of defending it. The Islamic State, I put it simply, they the caliphate now, they wanted, that's what they did. They were created and they declared the caliphate. And I think Al-Qaeda's um, view that it is unwise to establish the caliphate um, or declare the caliphate before you could defend it, I think that's proven to be quite correct. Um, so these groups, they don't just pose a threat to, to us in here in the West or in Europe or in countries like India. They, they throws, they, they've killed more people in Muslim countries than they've killed in all of their terror attacks combined. Far more, probably degrees of magnitude more. Um, and these countries, you know, many of these countries are countries where we get oil or we maintain strategic relationships. We don't want to see these countries fall into the hands of Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State because what they do is they use the, once they, uh, once they take control of territory, 
They establish training camps. So they're running these training camps even in areas where they control them, even if they don't control the entire territory. And then they branch out to conduct attacks elsewhere. Um, we've seen this uh, time and time again. You know, just because we want to end these endless wars, we're, the West is tired of fighting these wars because they're hard, because they, you know, they often don't end at all. They often, um, they just become these persistent low-grade wars that we're, we don't have attention span for. Um, just because we want to end the endless, so-called endless wars, it doesn't mean these wars are ending. The enemy gets a vote. And they're still fighting in these wars, even as we disengage. We operate on a, um, our time frame is on election cycles. Their time frame um, is on generations. They're fighting generational wars. We prioritize weapon system, systems. They prioritize the will to fight, the religious fervor. Um, we declare victory or we leave like in Afghanistan and pretend it wasn't a problem and they continue fighting. So. What is this, the state of the jihad today? Well, it, it, it depends on what theater we're talking about. Um, I always say there's an ebb and flow to the jihad. Um, I'll get an example of the perfect example of this are the countries of Somalia and, and um, Yemen, where in, in Somalia, Al-Qaeda took, uh, took control of southern and uh, central Somalia, including the capital Mogadishu in the late 2000s. Um, lost control, and now they're back in control of about 40% of the country, according, or I'm sorry, about 25, at least 25% of the country. That was the estimate from a U.S. general several years ago, and we know that it's only gotten worse there. Same in Yemen, where AQAP, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, took control of, um, uh, took control of many, several provinces in southern Yemen, uh, both from 2000, I believe it was 2011, 12 and then again from 2015-16. Right now in Yemen, the AQAP isn't doing so well, but they're still there. They still retain capacity. That fight has gotten very complicated. Um, we saw this in Iraq as well, right? With the, the U.S. was losing, it, con it conducted the surge in the late 2000s. Um, the U.S. wanted President Obama declared victory and left in 2011. Within three years, you had the declaration of the Islamic State, where they took control of a large area of Iraq and Syria. Um, then they were beaten back, and but they're still there. They still persist. The fighting um, is still going today. Um, I'm going to discuss Al Qaeda right here briefly, be, uh, and when, um, when looking at because we have a 20-year time period, I would I would argue that Al Qaeda <clears throat> is stronger today than it was pre 9/11. Pre-9-11, on September 10th, 2011, Al-Qaeda was fighting alongside the Taliban. That was where it was fighting in, in an insurgency, um, supporting the Taliban in its, in its efforts to take full control of the country because you still had the Northern Alliance. And, um, and then it operated on a cellular level in multiple countries, but it was not waging insurgencies, um, full-scale insurgencies. In, in Afghanistan, it was estimated to have probably 10 to 20,000 fighters there of various degrees. Today, Al-Qaeda has robust insurgencies. Somalia, to me, is outside of Afghanistan. Pakistan is the biggest one. Um, you know, they're threat. I, if, if, a, if a country fell, if you had to put, have me put odds on what country would fall next, it would probably be Somalia followed by Mali. Um, the jihad has exploded throughout the Sahel and West Africa. 
Um, you have the, the TTP in Pakistan. Al Qaeda isn't strong. Al Qaeda basically lost all of its uh, resources to the Islamic State when that split happened in Iraq. Um, and in Syria, Al Qaeda um, controls some territory in, in Idlib. So you have this, this, and what are they doing? They're training fighters. They're fighting on the battlefield, gaining experience. They have training camps. They have, or, they have an organizational capacity that they didn't have pre 9-11. Um, and then of course, Afghanistan. I mean, you have Taliban controlled Afghanistan um, right now, pre 9-11, the Taliban only controlled about, and you can estimate between 70 and 80% of the country. Today, the Taliban controls the entire country and that Taliban Al Qaeda um, relationship, it's, just, it's stronger today than it was on September 10th, 2001. Um, they, that's a relationship that's been forged in decades of, of fighting. Um, they, they have both shared sacrifices. The idea that the Taliban was going to break with Al Qaeda um, this was one of the things that I attempted to get the U.S. officials to understand and failed in both the Obama, in the Obama, the Trump and the Biden administration, uh, particularly the last two administrations felt that they could trust the Taliban to break with Al Qaeda and protect women's rights and uh, participate in an Afghan government. All you had to do was read the Taliban's propaganda in English and follow what they were doing. Um, did, I always say if the actions and the words match, you pretty much can read what's happening. The Taliban were issuing statements in English telling us what was happening and U.S. officials um, failed to, um, to understand this. Uh, and now we have a Taliban controlled Al Qaeda, Al a Taliban controlled Afghanistan with Al Qaeda and a host of other regional and global terror groups operating there. Um, after the fall of Afghanistan, we saw Al Qaeda leaders going back there, including Osama bin Laden's former security chief during, during the Battle of Tora Bora. Um, they're safe havens, again, in Somalia, in the Sahel. Um, the Islamic State is very strong in Africa as well. There's, there's fighting in countries, there's jihadist groups, insurgencies operating in countries that didn't exist pre-9-11 in Mozambique and um, in, in countries like Mali and, and Benin and Togo, it's, it's, it's amazing when you see how the jihad has expanded. And because we're losing our focus, because we're, we are desiring to end this endless wars, um, our ability to monitor the situation in, in some areas has decreased significantly. Um, last December, I believe it was General McKenzie, the, then the commander of CENTCOM, said our ability to see inside Afghanistan has gone from, you know, it has reduced to one to 2% to pre-withdraw. And if that's the best case estimate the US military give can give, that number is probably about 0.5 to 1%. Um, the US has established an, uh, a, a counter over the horizon counterterrorism center with hundreds of personnel, $19.5 billion, and has conducted zero strikes against Al Qaeda or other jihadist, uh, the Islamic State and other jihadists operating in Afghanistan. It's not a good return on investment. And that's because Oh, it's not just over the horizon, it's over the horizon's horizon. Um, we can, you know, but we were told by the US officials that we would be able to monitor the situation and we would be able to conduct over the horizon strikes. We continue to uh, overestimate our abilities and under, underestimate the abilities of our enemies. Um, the, um, 
Afghanistan, again, I'm going back to that, but it's the best example. We watched, we had two decades of this. We watched a, a nation fall. We, we had a surge there. We backed a government. We negotiated with, with an enemy that we couldn't determine was our enemy. Um, here's just one example of the failure. For between 2010 and 2000, late 2015, US officials said that there was 50 to 100 Al-Qaeda operatives op inside of Afghanistan. That number never changed. And I knew this was wrong right off the get-go because I would track not what the US military was saying in its raids against Al-Qaeda. Some years they would kill 75, sometimes it'd be 150, sometimes it would be 40. Um, and these raids were taking place in, in 24 of the 36, of, of the 34 Afghan provinces in Afghanistan. There's no way Al-Qaeda kept such a small footprint and kept their numbers static as we, um, you know, so we could just say 50 to 100 every year. And then of course that 50 to 100 number was blown out of the water in 2000, October, 2015. The US launched a raid against an Al-Qaeda camp in, Shor in Shorbak in Kandahar, which by the way, the US military was saying Al-Qaeda had no presence. 150 Al-Qaeda fighters were killed in an area where we said Al-Qaeda wasn't just in one single raid. So then they upped the number to 200. Oh, and by the way, that number was given after Shorbak and they, um, the Department of Defense Inspector General report that I just read a couple of weeks ago, and I wrote about this on Long War Journal, that number is still 200. We don't, we don't learn, um, we're, we're lazy when it comes to things like this. Uh, the next thing we got wrong in Afghanistan, we negotiated with the Taliban, even after, yeah, as we knew it maintained ties with Al-Qaeda and it lied about its intentions to negotiate in good faith with the Afghan government to um, respect women's rights and things like that. Um, and then to me, this is even, this, this is the best example of we don't understand what's happening and we, we have the poor ability to evaluate our enemies. The US, in that inspector general report, the US military said that the greatest threat emanating from Afghanistan is the Islamic State's Khorasan province, which only has a couple thousand fighters. It only conducts local attacks. It's an enemy of the Taliban, which controls the entire country. Um, it, if you, you know, I don't think I really need to go into much explanation here. The real threat in Afghanistan is the Taliban controlling the full country and allowing terrorist groups to train and, and seek safe haven there. We, we just, we've, we have not maintained, we have not made a real effort from day one to understand the nature of the threat. President Bush told us to go shopping and said they'd take care of it. Um, we fail to understand the role of religion and ideology and how that plays, how that motivates our enemy. The, um, an advisor to both General Milley, who's the chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff, as well as uh, General Miller, who was the US commander in Afghanistan, wrote an article, I believe it was in Politico, I'm not sure. And he said, yeah, we underestimated and didn't understand that the Taliban had religious motivations. How can you fight a war if you don't even understand them, what motivates your enemy, what drives them to fight. And we still don't understand this today. We think we can leave Afghanistan. We think we can leave these countries and these threats will, will go away. The enemy gets a vote. Um, if you fail to um, understand, if you do not understand your enemy, you don't have a chance in, in fighting that enemy effectively. And I'll leave it at that. And I look forward to your questions.
All right, thank you so much. Uh, the first question we have in is from Jeffrey Sheff. What is the current state of relations between Al-Qaeda and ISIS and Iran? Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and Iran, is that what you said? Okay, I'll take Al-Qaeda and Iran first. Um, they have a strategic relationship in the sense it's a pragmatic relationship that was pointed out in a secret deal. That was the words used, I believe, by the Treasury Department. So three success, four success, actually three. They began in the Bush administration, then went through most of the designations were issued under the, um, the Obama administration and then summoned during the Trump administration that outlined that secret deal. Um, Al-Qaeda gets safe haven and support from Iran in exchange for Al-Qaeda not conducting attacks in Iran. And Al-Qaeda, um, you know, receives support for carry, you know, carrying out attacks. They both share the same goal in, in that sense that they seek to drive the U.S. out of the Middle East and out of South Southeast Asia. Um, so there, there's that. Then Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, they are enemies. Um, it's, it's that simple. That rift still exists. Um, I don't see much of an opportunity of a reunification. I thought it might be possible after the US killed Baghdadi, but it just never happened. There's too much animosity between the groups and their, their, their view that, you know, the caliphate now versus the patient jihad of Al Qaeda, um, it's just a clash between the two. And I think there's a lot of personality conflicts. And then the Islamic State and Iran are, are direct enemies. Um, it, the Iran um, helped the Shia militias defeat the Islamic State inside of Iraq, as well as in Syria. Thank you so much for that. Uh, JL asks, how much of a direct threat do these organizations pose to the U.S. mainland? Right. And this is the one area where I can be positive, right? U.S. Homeland Security, for whatever faults there are, um, has done a very good job in, in keeping these threats to a minimum. And yet we've still had attacks, not just from the Islamic State, but from Al-Qaeda. There are small-scale attacks. Um, usually by followers um, or people who are supporters. Some have uh, declared allegiance to the Islamic State, but one of them in the Pensacola shooting seemed to be, an, it was an, an AQA, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula sleeper agent. Um, so, but yeah, I, I think the threat is low. I think the, 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 the possibility of a 9-11 style attack is low, but when you give your enemy time and space to organize, to regroup, to train, when they have that breathing space like they have, particularly in Somalia and in Afghanistan. You know, I don't wanna find out what, what's next on their plate. I don't wanna watch them innovate for the next major attack here in the West. Thank you. Jose Morales asks, the relationship between AQ and the Taliban has grown stronger now more than ever. However, Al-Zawahiri has invested a lot in AQIS as other terrorist groups in India have pledged allegiance, but we haven't heard much from AQIS. Uh, it was important then to invest in them. Uh, is it this, still the same now? Yeah, so Al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent is, or AQIS, is just a branch of Al-Qaeda. So you have the Al-Qaeda central or what people call core. Al-Qaeda refers to it as their general command. And then Al-Qaeda does refer to them as branches, but they also call them their theaters, or at least they did over a decade ago. So that's Al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, in the Islamic Maghreb, which is North Africa, 
um, East Africa, Al-Qaeda East Africa, that's mainly Shabab. So AQIS still exists. Um, some of its forces have, well, they, they actually declared allegiance to the leader of the Taliban that took some of, supposedly took some of the heat off of them of being a foreign group. Uh, no one should buy that. Yeah, it, what I'm seeing, I had predicted this and I'm starting to see Al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent and Al-Qaeda general command. Zarek Zawahiri just issued two statements um, within the last two months that was talking about redirecting the jihad into Kashmir, not just Kashmir, but into India as well. And part of the reasoning for this is now that the fighting is over, all these Pakistani groups and, and um, that have supported Al-Qaeda, um, they're going to need an outlet to fight somewhere. Um, remember, the jihad isn't over. It's just, oh, well, it's not over in Afghanistan. You still have some localized resistance in Panjshir, as well as they're fighting against the Islamic State there. But that's minor, and that's really left for the Taliban. But these other groups, particularly the Pakistani groups, are going to need a relief valve. They've they've had that to fight in Afghanistan, and now they're going to they're going to have to be pointed to um, conduct attacks into India. I, I suspect this will. So I do expect to see an increase or renewed effort from AQIS. AQ. I'm sorry to make this long, but um, we could have done a whole seminar on this. But uh, um, AQIS focused a lot of its energy, almost all of its energy in helping the Taliban win in Afghanistan. Now that's happened, now they could refocus to India because Afghanistan is part of Al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent as well, or that's in the theater of the Al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent. Thank you so much for, for doing that so succinctly. Um, wow. I'm, I'm sure that could be a whole webinar in itself. Uh, Carrie Hillebrand asked, what are, to what extent, uh, is the links between Al Qaeda and other terrorist groups such as Hamas or Hezbollah? Yeah, there's uh, Hezbollah in the sense that it's that same relationship as Iran. I haven't seen a lot of reporting or heard a lot about this. I think a lot of that was more historical. But given the Iran Al Qaeda relationship, um, it wouldn't surprise me to learn that these two groups cooperate on some level. But they seem to keep the they seem to keep more keep out of their each other's way, and then Hamas and Al Qaeda they're they would be at cross odds. I don't see any relationship between the two. Um, Al Qaeda doesn't like group like groups like Hamas because they take active state sponsorship, um, and they you know they willing to play political games. They, I mean, look, Al Qaeda, you know, uh, it's, it's different with the Al Qaeda Taliban relationship because the Again, that could be a whole nother uh, webinar there talking about the, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, Pakistan, um, what I call the wheel of jihad um, and how complicated that is. But uh, yeah, I don't, not a, not a strong relationship. I, I think these groups more stay out of each other's way than anything. Understood, thank you. Steve Amundsen. Asked, uh, you stated you cannot win a war if you do not know your enemy. Uh, what do you say motivates, or or what is the objective of jihadist groups such as Al Qaeda, uh, the Islamic State, etc.? And are they all the same? Yeah, they they share the same objectives. Again, it's to reestablish the global caliphate, impose Sharia. So they want to reconquer territory and impose Islamic law. Um, it's, you know, we, and again, US officials just pretended 
that their goal was to conduct terror attacks and, and drive us out of the Middle East, but it's much deeper than that. And so when I say this, some of the most important people that we should have targeted but avoided over the years was the religious leaders for both Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State um, and, and those who support them. Now, when I say target, it doesn't just mean in drone strikes or assassinations, but target them by getting countries to arrest them. There's still radical creatures in who support Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State that operate in multiple countries, including Saudi Arabia and Pakistan and um, and, you know, we could, you know, hosts of countries, Sudan, um, these individuals, what they do is these groups can't do what they do without the religious justification or the fatwa, right? The religious decree to allow them to carry out suicide attacks or conduct certain uh, attacks, certain targets. They need that religious justification. And without it, it would really weaken these groups. It's not the only way to defeat them. But since we never took that on, and it's because either we didn't understand our enemy or, and I think there's another component to this as well. Um, religious, religion is icky to us here in the West. If we have to recognize that there, that there is a religious component to this and, and then deal with it and, and actually say there is, I'm not saying the problem is in Islam, but there's a problem within Islam, that radical portion of Islam that needs to be dealt with. And, we, we steered away from that because we fear tags of Islamophobia and things, things of that nature. Again, a whole nother, well, I'm sorry to say that, but each one of these questions, I wish I could give you, you know, a full answer, but I hope that's good. good. Absolutely. So you're saying in the broader sense, if we wanted to end these endless wars, the, uh, the, how to do it would be the same in the broader sense of the Middle East? Well, if we wanted to end it, we'd have not just take out like, so I think what we did was, I don't think, what we did was rely on fighting these groups militarily, but we'd never tackled the ideology, right? We pretended that the root cause of terrorism was injustice and poverty and lack of education. Let, yet look at Al-Qaeda's top leaders. They're very well-educated individuals, you know, Bin Laden from the family of a, of a billionaire who was well-educated. Zawahiri is an, an eye doctor. I could go on and on about the credentials of, of some of the top Al-Qaeda leaders. Um, so it was never those things. It was never those root cause. The root cause is its religious fervor, its desire to reestablish re the caliphate. Thank you. And Carrie Hillebrand asks, are there any internal fissures or power struggles within Al-Qaeda or within ISIS? Yeah, and I would, you know, these often get played up. I'm going to use the Taliban as an example here because these are the most clear, okay? But there's certainly fissures or disagreements within the groups. I've seen these over the years. I'm not aware of any within Al-Qaeda at the moment. Um, the, and nor am I aware of any within the Islamic State. But within the Taliban, we often hear about there's a moderate faction and there's a you know, extremist faction. I always say, show me a moderate Taliban, but, <clears throat> but there's disagreements. <clears throat> Typically it's on, it's never on the objectives, but it's on, on how to achieve them. And, and that's what we see. So within the Taliban, there's a disagreement on the issue of um, women or school for girls, right? It's not because the moderate Taliban wants to give girls education. It's because the, the, and I say moderate, I'm putting that in quotes, 
it's because they don't, because it's making the guys who are so-called moderate Taliban who have to deal or are trying to get money from the West um, to get funds released um, when, when the Taliban just comes out and does a blanket ban on female education, then it makes those jobs harder. So those disagreements are more, um, again, more, more over the tactics of, of achieving the objectives and not the, not the overall objectives themselves. Thank you. And going back to your, your earlier point, uh, Judith Hershon asked, is the U.S. afraid of laying out the threat? Is the U.S. afraid that laying out the threat will result in a version of being branded Islamophobic by American Muslims? And given the Abraham Accord successes, is there any effort promoting the new paradigm or are the vast majority of American Muslims adhering to unreformed version of religion, religious rigorously opposed to normalization with the U.S.'s ally, Israel? Well, I think the um, average Muslim here in America, those that I know, would not object to us pointing out the problems that exist with um, the ideology of al-Qaeda. The only way to combat that, and unfortunately what we've done here in the United States, is we've ceded to groups like the Council for American Islamic Relations who scream Islamophobia as soon as you dare to mention that there might be a religious component to this, and who are known to support groups like Hamas, who are in, in some ways radical themselves. Um, so when you make them be the spokesman for American Muslims, you've you already lost the fight right there. And that's what I that's what we have done or that's what US officials have done over the last two decades. They're just, they're frightened of addressing the real root cause of this problem. Um, you know, and I think this also extends internationally as well. I think that the US um, does fear that pointing out the problems with the ideologies of groups like, because if you do this, right, then you have to go to Saudi Arabia and say, you have a problem. You have radical preachers in your country that you need to crack down on. And yet these are influential figures within th these countries. These are people who are powerful figures who the Saudis, their, their thing has always been like, hey, as long as you direct it outward, it's not really a problem for us, right? Just don't do your stuff. It's almost like that Al-Qaeda Iran deal, right? Just don't cause Al-Qaeda, don't cause us problems inside Iran and you could do what you want. It's that's how the Saudis have generally treated their radical Muslim preacher problem. And so if we start pointing this out, like, you know, there's, oh, I think there's just a lot of fear of, of, of being branded Islamophobic. And I don't think there was ever putting that, I don't think we we're gonna ever put that genie back in the bottle, by the way. Not in this uh, environment of cancellation, everyone's afraid to say anything remotely. Um, I mean, hey, I might be canceled after answering these questions, who knows? It's always a threat. Uh, thank you so much. We've come to the uh, close of our webinar. Before we go, could you let our viewers know where we can find some more of your work? Sure, yes. Uh, if you, uh, we publish at the Long War Journal. That's longwarjournal.org and follow us on Twitter at Long War Journal. Um, and if you wanna follow me as well, um, I am at Bill Raggio, all right? All right, thank you so much, Bill, for joining us today. We really appreciate your insight. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It really is a pleasure and uh, happy to answer questions anytime. 
Absolutely. Uh, for our viewers, please be on the lookout for our weekly webinar offerings email coming out over the weekend. Thank you all for joining us and I hope you have a wonderful day.